Last week we talked about the the greatest commandment, and this week we are going to be talking about the second greatest commandment. So I'll be in Matthew chapter twenty two again, verses thirty four to uh, forty. And uh, we are going to read the passage that we read last week, but we're going to finish what Jesus said. We didn't get to finish what he said last week. Everybody's on Team Heather. I don't know how I feel about this right now. Uh, Any support for AC people? Uh, (laughs) uh, Anyway, so you can read with me again if you haven't. uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can text 97,000. You can text OUTLINE. Uh, and we'll make sure the link gets sent to you and you can read along with me. We have two scriptures we're going to be reading, Matthew chapter 22 today and in Luke chapter 10 in a little bit. Uh, So I'll, I'll start off and read. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That's where we ended last week. Then he says, he continues, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So last week, what did we talk about? We talked about the first and the greatest commandment, to love God. And if we had to distill what does love, what is it outside of a feeling, what is the actionable step towards loving God? It is obedience of God's commands, what he has called us to do. Uh, And so this week we're going to talk about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, which is the second greatest commandment. But the first great commandment, loving God, always leads to the second great commandment, which is this, loving people. You know, um, uh, many times we hear the spirituality and the spirituality space, uh, especially nowadays, because there has been a lot of church hurt. And so when people get hurt from church or the traditional church has done something to kind of spook somebody away or get somebody upset or uh, there, there's the church hurt side, then there's also the, the people that will he- go to a church and hear what the Bible says and then say, well, I don't like that. I don't want to be a part of the established church. And so we have a group of people that have been hurt by the church and we have a group of people that do not like the established church, the bride of Christ. And there's something that they have all agreed upon, and that is this, that you can have a relationship with God, but that doesn't uh, affect the community or the lifestyle around you. And this is incredibly false because when Jesus says the greatest commandments, there's the first and the greatest, which means this one is always priority and above, but this one always comes after it because they are connected. You our relationship with God, if, if your salvation experience, if the gospel only affects your relationship with God but does not affect the relationships of people around you, then there is a piece missing of what you heard about God. And maybe you haven't been serving God. You've been serving a false understanding of God, your own God in your own image, where it's more around what I personally want, what I personally believe, and doesn't affect Uh, anybody around me. So a true relationship with God affects how we treat people, how we love people and develop the community of people around us. So in Matthew, we have the context of Jesus giving these two great commandments where the Pharisees and the Sadducees were testing Jesus. And they were trying to come to a place to trip him up 
uh, as they were always doing so that they can catch him and get the crowds to walk away from him, and then ultimately so that they can find a chance to arrest him and crucify him. But Luke actually gets um, a different account to us where Jesus gives the first greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. He gives it to us in a different scenario. And so in Luke's account, after Jesus says the same thing, somebody tries to get smart with Jesus. And they say, well, who is my neighbor? Right? When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And essentially, this is... um, someone trying to get philosophical. You ever ask a question and you really don't like uh, you know, what somebody asked, and so you try to get very philosophical with that question. So this guy tries to get smart. He tries to get very philosophical all of a sudden. He goes, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? You know, how, how can you say who my neighbor is? Uh, and it's like it's, you know, if somebody were to say, don't steal, and then after they say don't steal, you go, well, what is, what, what is stealing really? You know, it all comes from the earth anyway, so we all have to share what is stealing anyway, right? And so this is the, the same thing what this person is doing. is like, like, who is my neighbor actually? What does that mean? And so Jesus then tells the story. It's one of the most famous stories in scripture. It's called the Good Samaritan. And reading about the Good Samaritan in the context of the first and, and second great commandments actually sheds a lot of light on what it means to love your neighbor in a very actionable way. And so Jesus tells this story to illustrate who their neighbor is. And again, you can read this. It's Luke chapter 30. You can follow along on the outline, um, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Or you can go on your phone, take out your physical Bible, whatever it is, uh, and read along with me. So it says here in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. Jesus replied to the guy who just asked him, well, who is really my neighbor? He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So this guy who asked that philosophical question to kind of wiggle out of what Jesus was saying, he replies and he says this in verse 37. He said, the one who showed mercy, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So to kind of explain this story a little bit more, I want to help you understand the context of what Jesus is talking about here. So there's a Jewish person. He is going from uh, uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. And the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was a notorious route that had a lot of places where you're alone, rocky places where robbers were known to go and rob people. And so Jesus uses this route because everybody knew about it, of where you would go from one city to the next and 
there was a good chance that you would fall upon trouble if you weren't careful. And so he illustrates your walking this, which many of them had walked this route, and you get attacked. And there are three people there that after you get attacked, you're half dead, you're on the road, right? You, The only way that you're going to get better at this point is if somebody comes along and helps you. If not, you most likely will get worse and die. And so there's three characters that Jesus brings into play. And the first character that Jesus brings into play is the priest. So the priest comes... Uh, the, the priest is the order of people that are essentially the elite of the elite when it comes to the religious. These are the descendants of Aaron himself. When you think about the Exodus story, which is the story told over and over again in Jewish tradition, it's the story uh, even that if, if you read the New Testament with the letters to the churches constantly drawn upon as the faithfulness of God, of who God is. And so when talking about the um, when we talk about Moses and Aaron, these were you know, two of the, the greats in Israelite history. The priests were the order that were all descendants of Aaron, who were the people who went to God on behalf of all the people of Israel. So they would perform the sacrifices. They would pick a high priest every year that would go before the presence of God and the Holy of Holies. Uh, these were the people that communed with God on behalf uh, of all of the people, and they would teach the people. These were supposed to be the holiest of the holy people. These were the sons of Aaron. They were supposed to guide the people in God's way and teach the people uh, God's commands and teach the people what God wanted them to do. But yet, here is this priest who should understand the law of God, should understand the commands of God, seeds this person half dead, and what do they do? They walk on the other side. If you want to equate the priest to somebody today, I'd say probably the best example is the modern day pastor. What it what should the what would you expect a pastor to do if you saw this person, if they saw somebody half dead on the side of a road just attacked by robbers? The second person, the second character that comes into play uh, is the Levite. So the Levites, these were the the tribe of people that were set apart by God. Every single one of the uh, 12 tribes got land except for the tribe of the Levites. And what happened with the Levites is when uh, all the people had rebelled against God and there was a false idol set up and they worshiped the golden calf again during the Exodus story, the Levites were the people that did not rebel. And so because of that, instead of getting a portion of the land, they were blessed and their portion was God's portion. What they were supposed to do was they were the servers in the temples. Everywhere there were temples. The Levites were the people. They were the priestly helpers. They were the tribe that was set apart specifically for God. Their inheritance was the Lord, and that was why they were given no physical inheritance in the land. So again, these are people that are supposed to be a type of religious elite. They, they are people that should know better. They are the servers in the temple. You can say a Levite would be a modern-day volunteer. These are people that you expect in the church, if they're volunteers, to be part of the church. These are They, they understand the, the culture of the church. They understand what the Christian is supposed to be like, what it means to be part of the church. But yet, what happens when the Levite sees the person half-dead, beaten by the robber on the side of the road. 
the Levite does exactly what the priest does and goes to the other side and passes by without another thought. Now here comes the Samaritan. The Samaritans were interesting because they were the mortal enemies of the Jews. The Samaritans were after the King Solomon, right? You had the period of the judges uh, after the Israelites get into their inheritance, into the promised land. You have the period of the judges, uh, Samuel being the first. You go through the period of judges. It ends really poorly. If you've ever read Judges, it has one of the craziest uh series finales that you'll ever watch on TV. And then after that, you go into the period of the kings and you have the first king, Saul, then you have David, and then you have Solomon. And then after Solomon, you have a split. There's a civil war in Israel and you have the Northern kingdom, which keeps the name Israel. And you have the Southern kingdom that keeps that is essentially called Judah. Uh, And so the Northern kingdom they get conquered a lot sooner and they fall into idolatry a lot sooner than the southern kingdom. And what happens is when they get conquered, there's a lot of intermarriage. There's a lot of intermingling of idols. And so, yes, they worship Yahweh, but they also worship Baal. They also worship Asherah. There's a lot of other gods that they begin to worship. And Yahweh worship becomes part of all this other worship because they have assimilated the culture of their captives and all the gods of their captives. And so when Judah sees this, when Judah is trying to stay holy unto Yahweh, they look at the northern kingdom and say, they do not serve the same God as us. They are second class citizens to us. They are no longer what we would consider Jewish. They are Samaritans, and they begin to start arguing over where do you worship, um, what, what, is, what is true religion unto God, all these different things. And so they essentially become mortal enemies. Um, you know, you, and the, the, the understanding of a Samaritan helping a Jew would just be absolutely crazy, you know, uh, and it, it's just unthinkable, um, because the Samaritans, the Jewish people, they thought like they, they were not allowed to mingle with unclean and in their heads, the Samaritans were now unclean. And so the Samaritans, they felt the discrimination that the Jews gave towards them. And then there was more hostility there. And so those cultures uh, did not intermingle. Think of it like this, you know, insert that someone that you have made fun of on Facebook recently because of their political views. And that person being the one that you would least think to stop and help you when you were half dead on the road, right? Uh, if, if you put this in political terminology, uh, I was thinking, what, what is what is a, a, a scenario that we can enjoy? What it sounds? Just imagine you are, you know, a staunch Democrat, and uh, you are walking along the road, and you see somebody, and they're half dead, they're bleeding, they have their MAGA cap on, their recent bounty booty of Goya products is sprung all over the floor. 
Um, and they're, and you're looking at them and you're just, and you know, they, they don't have a mask on and, and you have your mask and you're thinking like, am I going to go help this person? Like, right. If you only watch the news, you would think that these two people cannot get along. They are mortal enemies with each other. There's no way that they can love one another and care for one another. And so when you think of, oh, a pastor going by, oh, that that's definitely some potential for them helping. When you think of, oh, this person volunteers in this church, they serve in this church, yeah, that's some potential for helping. But when you think about these two political mortal enemies helping each other, you think like that is never going to happen. That is impossible to happen. Yet, it is not the pastor. It is not the volunteer. It is the mortal enemy that stops and begins to care for this person. What do the religious elite do in this scenario? They pass on the other side. And there's something that I think that Jesus is always, like he, he is always getting at something. He's always making, he's always taking these shots at the religious elite. And the reason why he shares things like this is because the religious elite have lost the true sense of what it means to follow God, to follow the law. They they have created these traditions. We've talked about this. They've created all these things, but they have lost the heart of the commands of God, which was to love him and to then love people. See, what, what has happened then and what happens now is the religious elite somehow become too righteous to help the needy, right? The, the needy, the people that need God are now beneath them, right? When, when Jesus went and he sat in the home of tax collectors and he allowed prostitutes to care for him, what would happen? People would say, Jesus, how could you do this? These are, these are unclean people. What are you doing sitting and drinking with sinners? How could you? Right? Because there's this understanding that happened then that happens now. And that's this. That when we take on the righteousness of God, we somehow become too good for the people around us. And so instead of realizing the heart of God is to be fully righteous, but also fully caring and fully merciful and fully gracious and fully loving is to look at the sinner and not to look at them and condemn them, but to look at them and care for them and to send his only son to die for them, to come not as a master who lords it over them, as Jesus says, but to come as a servant among them and to wash the feet of the disciples, to wash the feet of the people who are morally insuperior to him, to wash the feet of, of his enemies because we are all enemies of the cross. We, Jesus died for us while it's, we are still sinners, scripture says. He doesn't die for the people that love him. He dies for his mortal enemies, sinners who have turned their back against him. So he does, Jesus doesn't see his moral superiority and think, you know what? Forget earth, forget humans at this point. What does he do? He comes and he dies. He comes as a servant among us. And so here, what happens? The religious elite do the exact opposite of what Jesus calls us to do, of what scripture calls us to do, of what the character of God would call us to do. And that is this. 
that we would love even our enemies. Those are our neighbors, which Jesus says so clearly. He says, even the Gentiles, anybody can love the people who love them. That's not hard. The whole world, this is, this is what's inscribed on in our hearts. This is what we grow up with. If you treat me nice, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. But to follow God is not is to go beyond loving the people that love you. It's to love your enemy. And so here's the Samaritan who sees this Jew Afton on the road, who is his enemy. And what does he do? He loves him. This is how Jesus defines love. But yet, so often we take this position of the religious elite And the church will look at the world around it and say, well, you are morally insuperior to me, so I don't want to mingle with you. You are unclean, unrighteous, and I am righteous, and I am clean, and I am holy. And so there cannot be, instead of loving you, instead of caring for you, what do I do? I condemn you, I hate you, and I spew just constant condemnation against you, right? And, and you look at this today when I think of how the church has in the West spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into the billions at this point of the buildings that we have built and the systems that we created and the productions we have created, but yet we have shunned the needy. Right? We have sat on our religious high horse And instead of going down into the grimy clay, into the mud to care for the sinner, we have looked down upon them and have not given them a hand. We have said, you know what? You sit in the back of the church. You're not allowed in here. Like there's a, a certain class that is allowed before you can come to this place. You're not, I'm not, this is sacred space. This is. Sacred, I think of, right, and I've seen the church get a lot better at this one, but at how, how I grew up, it was when you were entering into the service uh, on Sunday, it was like in the Old Testament entering into the temple, right? And that meant like if you came in with a hat, you were going to get that hat snatched off your head. Uh, I remember this one church I went into, uh, I, I went to preach there. Uh, this had to be like maybe 12, 15 years ago. Uh, and, you know, the, the, I brought a couple of people with me and one of the young ladies I came with was wearing pants and they, they pulled out the skirt from the closet, you know, to wrap around her. I was like, you're not allowed in here like that. Uh, for me, like they had extra ties because, you know, like obviously I don't like to dress up, so I didn't come with a tie. So they pulled out a tie from the closet, like they gave it to me and it was, and, and this it's like you you are not allowed in unless you become like us. There is not this understanding, like Paul said, that I will become like you to reach you with the gospel. No, the religious elite will always say, you have to become like me because I am better than you. And that is not the way of Jesus. What does Jesus do? It says in John 1 that he came and dwelt among us. He came in human form. He came like us. He came in our form. He came with our frailty. He came with our weakness. 
He did not look at us and say, well, you cannot be like me unless you can obtain and get into the heavenly realm, then I want nothing to do with you. What? He became like us in our weakness and our frailty. What does Paul say? He says that I will be all things to all people at all times so that some may get the gospel. That is not religious elitism. What is that? That is loving your neighbor enough to look past differences, enough to look past walls, that understanding that the wall of separation has been torn down when Jesus died on the cross. And so this, what you would expect this this pastor and this volunteer to stop and help actually is not the norm because our heart will take the righteousness of God and we will make it the righteousness of men. And we will say, I have earned this. I deserve this. I get this. And we will look at sinners and say, you filthy person. You sinful person. You do not deserve the help and the care and the love. Because look at all your life decisions. Look at all the bad things that you have done. Look at all the current ways that you are living. You do not deserve this. And that's why we will look at them forgetting that when, even in the Old Testament, when God gave the law in Deuteronomy, it says, you do not deserve this. It is not because of your righteousness. When we enter into salvation, it is not because of our righteousness. It is because the righteousness of Jesus. It is because the grace of God, the mercy that he had on his people and so we, it is crazy to think that the priest and the Levite would look down on somebody because that would mean that they have forgotten that it is not even their own righteousness through the law that has earned the love of God, but it is the love of God who has cared for them that now that pours over their head and seeps out so that they can love others. What has been done to them first allows their heart to change so that they can go and begin to love others. When we read what the Samaritan did, it actually gives us a great blueprint for what loving our neighbor actually means. You know, in our society, love has mainly been defined as a feeling, right? And uh, I think what has been helpful for psychology to come out later uh, uh, recently, and and I say recently in the last decades, is this understanding as we've decided love is a feeling, uh, Psychology has been able to tell us, well, actually, what you feel in the beginning of a relationship is called the honeymoon phase, right? And this is the phase of just like head over the heels. This is, this is where the, the, the line love is blind comes from because you're probably going to be blind for a year and a half to three years and just like that person can do no wrong. That, but, you know, when you start getting into a relationship with somebody, whether they're your best friend or your spouse, what happens? You get into fights with them. You realize, yeah, you can actually do wrong. There are a lot of things that you do wrong. And so then then what does it mean at that point? Like if, if my honeymoon feeling is gone, then what does it actually mean to love somebody? Because if if feelings are fleeting in this area, then love has to go beyond what a feeling is and it has to then jump into an actionable choice that we make on a regular basis. 
And so when love is defined here, Jesus is not saying that when you are entering into a honeymoon phase with a new friend or a stranger that, you know, just help them as much as you can in the beginning. And then when you don't have that feeling anymore, then you move on. Know that he does not describe love this way. If you look at the story that he tells, love is described in very actionable ways and very sacrificial ways. And there are actually four ways that you see love taken in an action here by the Samaritan. The first thing that you see the Samaritan do is he is sacrificial of his time. He is sacrificial of his time. It says he stopped on his journey. He went to the man who was half dead and bound up his wounds. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but I think in New York specifically, this is a big deal. Because when I am on my way to work, when I'm on my way to get pizza, when I'm on my way to get my bagel, when I am on my way, it does not matter where I am on my way to. I am making sure that I get there as fast as possible, uh, and I'm getting there in the shortest amount of time, and I have tunnel vision of I am going to get there. You know, uh, Heather will remind me when I'm driving that like we are not in a rush to get to where we need to go. And I'm like... I'm sorry. I am in a rush to get everywhere that I'm going. It does not matter if I have five hours to get somewhere and this is a 20-minute drive. I will try to make it a 15-minute drive because this is the culture that I grew up in, that we are in a rush to get everywhere, right? And so I need to be reminded, like, I'm, I'm not in a rush. So this understanding of sacrificing of time, of actually stopping where I was going to and going to help somebody knowing now that I am... I have perfectly calculated in my head how long it was going to take me to get somewhere, and that meant I was going to get there right on time, and that meant that I had there was no funny business from point A to point B because that was going to mess up my time schedule for the rest of the day. Now, now to stop and to actually help something means I am sacrificing my, my whole day in my head is a disaster now. It's all blown to bits. You know, this is going to mess up this. It's going to mess up that. It's going to mess up this. So sacrificing of time, the first thing the Samaritan does is he stops where he was going. He goes to the person. He went to them and he begins to bind up his wounds. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not a nurse, so I've, I've only bound up a couple of wounds, mainly washing with alcohol and putting band-aids on them at this point in my life. Um, but what I can tell you this is that takes time. This is not like, a, oh, let me stop for two seconds, go run over there and then jump back on my way. No, this is a stop. I need to unpack here. I'm going to make sure you're not bleeding. I'm going to clean you out. I'm going to bind you up. It says he was half dead. So there are probably many wounds. You know, I can give you some high school fight stories of people that got jumped and tell you that after someone gets jumped, when you see someone in that state, that is that is not a quick like, oh, let me wipe you, dust you off and put a Band-Aid on it. That is like ambulances are coming. You are going to the hospital. You are not staying in school for a few days, right? Like there, there are, this is, this is serious when this happens. This is not a quick divergence off of where I was going. This is, I'm going to sacrifice my time. That is love. See, the next thing that he does is he sacrifices personal items, right? It says that he took out oil and wine 
to help clean this person up. He took out oil and wine. These, these are his possessions. He sacrifices his personal possessions for this stranger that he's never met before to give them this. Now, you know, we're, we're doing a counseling session here if you haven't figured it out yet because one of the issues that I've always had growing up was sharing, right? I don't know. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't even say growing up. The, an issue I have is sharing. <laughs> you know, like uh, this morning, I'll give you an example. I, we had leftover really good. Anybody who's ever had Lombardo's Pizza in Bay Ridge, it is probably hands down best gourmet pizza in Bay Ridge. It's incredible. You know it's incredible for this one reason. They don't deliver. Have you ever met a pizzeria that doesn't deliver? But yet they make a lot of money. Why? Because the pizza is so good that everybody will walk over there and buy that pizza. So last night, what did I do? I went over there, bought that pizza, had some great Lombardo's pizza. And then this morning, I knew there were only a certain amount of slices left. Heather was going to want a slice. I wanted two slices. Then that would mean one slice left. And if I brought out the pizza... That would mean that I have to give a slice to Levi, a slice to Judah, a slice to Heather, and I only get one slice. So what did I do as a loving dad? I sat in the kitchen and ate two slices so that nobody knew about the pizza, right? Like, it is still hard for me to share. When I want something, I am going to eat it, and I'm going to hide at this point somewhere, and I'm going to eat it. And you know what? Levi, he came in the kitchen and I was like, oh man, he's going to blow up my spot. Everybody's going to want to eat pizza now. <laughs> oh man, Heather said we're all listening. <laughs> Don't worry, kids. I'll buy you some pizza later. <laughs> and he was, he had, thankfully, he had just eaten breakfast. So he wasn't trying to eat any of my pizza. And I was very happy about that. He's probably better at sharing than I am at this point, And it's really sad. Uh, <laughs> and, and so like, this is a big deal being able, like if you're going on a journey, what happens when you go on a journey, you take what you need for your journey, right? It's not like, it's not like nowadays, you know, where sometimes I go away with people for a day and they come like the retreat is a great example. You know, I've had people come in my char- car with me and I'm like, bro, you packed for a month. That is not a two-night-away packing, what you did there. How many people pack for a month every time you go away? Right? <laughs> I see the hands going up. Right? That, is, that, that was not back in the day. You could not pack for a month. Right? You, you had your animal, and the animal could only carry so much weight. And so what did you do? You took your essentials with you. You took your essentials and that was it. And so this guy, he's on this long journey. He takes his essentials with him. And what does he do? He sacrifices his essentials. He gives up of his personal items and he gives it to this person. It wasn't like nowadays where it's like, oh, you need a pair of shoes. Don't worry. I brought 50 shoes with me for my two day vacation. You know, it was no, like I have one pair of sandals and here, if you need that, I'm going to give it to you. Uh, and <laughs> so sacrifice, sacrificing personal items is love, right? If, if you have, right, I, I know that when I go out to eat and my wife wants to eat some of my meal, this is love. Me saying, okay, you can eat that last piece that I was thinking about for the last half hour and was waiting to eat. You can eat that. That that is love. That is sacrificing 
personal items, right? Like when when you give of something that is yours to somebody else that you have prepared for yourself, that is love. Sacrificial of comfort, sacrificing comfort. This guy, when he sees this man half dead after he binds him in his wounds, he gives him the wine to make him feel better, the oil to make him look better, and he fixes him up. What does he do? He doesn't say, well, I only have one camel or one mule. It doesn't say what animal he had. He's like, well, I only have one mule, so you're, you know, looks like you're going to be walking. No, uh, he puts him on his animal. He puts him on his animal. He sacrifices his own comfort so that this person can now uh, be able to get to the next destination safely and comfortably, right? Comfort is is like the highest standard of, of wealth in our society. Comfort is... Is, is everything. You know, when, when you have comfort, you have, you have made it. Comfort is, 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 is vacation, is clothes, is, is living. It is all these things, right? The pursuit of happiness can be wrapped up in one word and that is comfort. And so to, to give of somebody what to give of somebody like, you know what I always thought like when I knew a friend loved me is when I would go to their house and they would give up their bed for me and sleep on the floor or sleep on the couch. Like if anybody has ever done that for you, they love you. Even if you've never met them before, like they understand what love is. Why I like, why do I think that as love? Because I love sleep. There's like, I absolutely love sleep. So my great comfort is like, Eight hours of sleep. That is a great comfort. I knew Heather loved me when she would let me sleep through the night and take care of the kids at night. Like that to me told me like, man, you love me. When you give up your own comfort for somebody else, when you take the uncomfortable route, the uncomfortable road, that so that somebody else can walk in a comfort that you are giving up of that. That says, man, I love you so much that I am willing to walk in uncomfortableness for you to have comfort. Now, I, I, what, what Jesus says is, I am willing to die on the cross so that you do not have to. I am willing to take on all the condemnation, all the judgment all the pain of sin so that you do not have to. This man, he sacrifices his comfort. He sets the guy on his own animal to sacrifice comfort on the behalf of somebody else. That is love. And the last thing he did, he was sacrificial of his finances. He paid two denarius for this man to sleep in the lodging. And then he told the person, can you imagine this nowadays? Honestly, I can't. To just leave your credit card on file at the hotel for somebody else that you never met before and say, you know what? Whatever they charge, don't worry about it. Put it on my credit card. I'm good. Whenever they got to go, they got to go. Just make sure that they get better. Whatever you need. I would say that that is like the, the same of going to a hospital and a hotel, leaving your credit card and saying, whatever the bill is, I got it covered. 
That is wild, right? The in like go test this out. Go ask your friend for ten dollars later. You know, you're gonna see the level of love. They may give you the ten dollars, but you're gonna see on their face how much they love you before they give you that ten dollars, right? Okay, okay. You know, like here it is. Here, or you may get like, what do you need it for? Like, cause I'm, I'm weighing out whether I need the $10 more than you need the $10, right? Like this is $10. This guy gave up days of wages here and then gave a credit of saying whatever they need, give it to them. Karina, when you're back in New York, I will spot you $10. <laughs> what, whatever you need, I will give it to them. Right? That, that is wild. The love is sacrificing financially for others. That when you see somebody, a brother or sister in need, and you have the means for you to give it, that doesn't mean that it's just like extra, you know, you got money falling out of your pockets and you got money everywhere to give away. And this is just disposable income. It's sacrificial. It's saying, you know, what, I will give of what I, I maybe have planned this money for something else, but I'm going to give it to you now. Love is sacrificing of time. Love is sacrificing of personal goods. Love is sacrificing of comfort. Love is sacrificing of, of, of finances. Love is actionable. Love is actionable. There are ways where Jesus teaches. He says, when you love your neighbor, this is what you do. Your neighbor, first of all, is your enemy. This is how we act towards everybody. And when you love your enemy, it is not just saying, I'll pray for you from afar. It is not saying, I will forgive you for what you did to me. It is going out of your way to sacrifice for them in actionable ways to show them the love of God, just like he actionably showed us his love towards us by coming down in human form, dying on the cross, then raising, defeating death on our behalf so we can live with an imperishable reward and have an eternal blessing of being in his presence. So if you, if you have to ask yourself, because that word love is so confused nowadays, it's the reason why there's so many issues and friendships and churches and families, because if we are not feeling love anymore, then we walk away from loving relationships. And so when you have to ask yourself, what is love? Remember, love is actionable. To love God is to obey God. To love others is to serve them, to serve sacrificially. So if you had to distill and remember, okay, am I loving towards people? Ask, have I served people? Have I served my enemies, even the people that I don't like? Or, or have I instead just condemned them on Facebook or made fun of them in private? Have I served them? Have I obeyed him? The whole of the law can be wrapped up. In that. Let's get that right. Let's not be fooled by what society will tell us love is. Let's not be fooled by what our friends will say love is. Let's not be fooled by what TV and entertainment tells us love is. Let's look at scripture and, and see when love is mentioned, when God says love, what does he say right after that? What does he say right before that to explain what it actually means to love God, what it actually means to love your neighbor as yourself? Pray with me. Father, thank you 
Thank you for the ways that you have showed us love, that you have left us a blueprint for what it means to sacrificially serve others and do this thing that we call love, this word that we call love. Lord, but to define love, the depth and the meaning of that word, we thank you for that, Father. Because you give us actionable steps to love those around us, to love those that we never met, to even love our enemy. Lord, I pray that as we spend time in your word, as we spend time in your presence, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be transformed so that we can walk in love towards you and love towards others. That these wouldn't be theories that we talk about, that we don't, these wouldn't be theories that we just amen on a Sunday, but Lord, that this would be transformational knowledge, that when we sit in your word, that we would remember all the things that we are reading, all the things that we are meditating on can be summed up in these two things, to love you and to love others, Father that we would allow your spirit to come now and even transform our heart and mind. That next time we are given a choice on whether we will love our neighbor or not, we remember the deep love that you had for us even when we did not deserve it. And that we would choose love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.